Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, and today we have Dr. Orly Athens. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice and faculty member and co-founder of the Sexuality, Women, and Gender Project at Teachers College at Columbia University. So if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you might notice a little bit of a trend. I've kind of clustered together and I've been diving into the topic of parenthood motherhood. So we had a whole podcast about embracing motherhood. We had another podcast about sex during pregnancy and postpartum and how to express that during that time and also kind of myth busting some ideas during that time. And we have a podcast today about, see if I can pronounce it correctly, matronescence. I have to think of the word adolescence to get matronescence out there. And it's pretty much the same thing as Orly talks about. It is that transition, just like adolescence, where there's a shift from uh, prepubescent into adulthood. There's a shift from before motherhood to what motherhood's about. So I hope you enjoy this. Um, Orly has some really amazing things to to share, and she's really intelligent with her approach to this. So please enjoy. I also want to remind you that if you are enjoying Yoga Birth Babies, please take a moment to go to our website and rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher. And I'm also asking that if you are enjoying the podcast to consider donating to the podcast. It helps keep us running, keeps the sound engineer getting paid. It keeps everything running. So please please take a moment to go to our website and make a donation. It just helps further the uh, empowerment and the education behind what we offer. Enjoy the podcast. Take care. Hi, Orly. I am so excited to speak with you. Thank you for spending some time with me. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to uh, be invited to this conversation. Yeah. So recently I have been on this kick about motherhood. Maybe it's just where I am in my time of life. So I have done several podcasts about this, but I really like your take on on the evolution of motherhood, that transition from maiden to motherhood. And okay, help me if I'm saying this right. Matrescence, is that correct? That's right. Uh, matrescence <laughs> like adolescence. That's right. Yeah. Because they're both huge transitions. When I read that you named it that or were using that name, I'm like, oh, that makes such sense. So before we get into kind of the meat of our chat, I'd love just to have our community hear a little bit about yourself and how you got into the work that you do now. Sure. Thank you. Um, and I do want to make a quick comment that, you know, your own um, interest or awakening or, you know, focus now on motherhood seems to be a parallel process to the larger culture, which I also am fascinated by. Uh, why now? Why we are all sort of collectively coming together to honor and put words to this experience? Because um, for myself, I've been doing this for a better part of a decade or more and have found uh, it difficult in a way to bring it to the mainstream. We have really been in an academic uh, small corner of the world. So even in academia, it's been um, in a bit uh, a lonely journey to bring this forth. And now I'm so delighted that there's been a 
um, groundswell of professionals and the public from all corners of different fields coming together from economics to, you know, um, obstetrics to so many different um, interdisciplinary conversations happening. So I'll tell you about my neck of the woods. Great. Okay. So I am a clinical psychologist by training and I actually studied uh, spiritual adult development. And you might wonder, how did I get to motherhood from there? Well, at the same time, I was very much uh, interested in women's mental health across the lifespan. And I started to look at reproductive, um, reproductive experiences in, in uh, cancers, reproductive cancers, and looked at death-defying experiences from this kind of existential point of view, meaning that uh, women were having a reckoning that time in their lives from the diagnosis to the treatment and the survival. And they were having this um, reprioritization, this identity shift, a really new world order. And they came through on the other side with some very interesting insights. And I thought that it was such a powerful experience that I had seen before in other kinds of um, uh, trauma survival or crisis um, or even addiction. And I had the question whether in the reproductive experiences from menstruation to menopause, whether such an awakening or some kind of um, big crisis, you know, psychological turning point would happen for life-affirming experiences, um, in this case, giving birth or becoming a parent. So I applied you know, that lens uh, around this, what is a, a word called metanoi on the side of the reproductive cancers, meaning you have a whole total worldview conversion into the, the transition to motherhood. And here I am at Teachers College, Columbia University, as a reproductive psychologist. I could not find the coursework um, that I had wished to have in my own training. I couldn't find even the literature. Um, I had to dig in very interesting places to find it. I had to go into anthropology. I had to go into feminist psychoanalysis. I had to go into, um, in a way, places outside of my particular field, because even in clinical psychology, the focus was on mainly distress and looking at at the time, what was only called postpartum depression. And so the conversation was very narrow, whereas I understood the struggle of women to be more complicated. Uh, it wasn't so black and white. And I found my rescue largely in female-centered uh, professions like midwifery um, and medical anthropology. And her name is Dana Raphael, and she came from Colombia. She's the woman who coined the word doula. Um, and she came up with this term called metrescence in the early 1970s. And that was my big aha. I took that term from anthropology and I applied it to clinical health. And from there, something very big opened up. Um, and what I mean by that is also very practical. So for me, it led to a series of uh, writing and research and scholarship. It gave birth to a course on developmental 
psychology for mothers, so not clinical psychology. Um, so maternal development, looking at their transitional experience. So I, I developed the first course, I'd say nationally, on um, uh, matrescence. And then from there, we got the first course as well nationally for uh, perinatal uh, mental health. And then a certificate program as well. So slowly but surely building on this new framework, which I think changed the conversation entirely. And um, I'll stop there and see if that... um, Yeah, so many questions. Yeah, that does. So, okay, let's back up, and if you can just explain the concept of matrescence. I'm I'm trying to say that right, and then how that opened into like what kind of coursework do you teach on that? I'm fascinated by this. Mm -hmm. So, matrescence, like adolescence. Um, You know, in some ways, I would even do this as a call and response and ask you what uh, (laughs) that that brings up for you. Oh, and yeah. sure. Do you want me to? Okay. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the table. Sure. Um, matrescence. So when you, when I read that you liken it to adolescence, that was an aha moment. So I, you know, adolescence, a massive change hormonally. I was actually thinking about this yesterday. It's a big change hormonally. It's, but it seems to be embraced a little bit more with support and understanding and like, oh, this person's going through adolescence will be, will be a more understanding. And then I thought a bit from a motherhood point of view, and there's still a massive hormonal change and quicker. Um, you know, if someone has, you know, if someone's giving birth, it's such a drop in hormones and such a very abrupt change. So I thought about that. And then I thought about the very quick shift into motherhood that one day you could be pregnant and then the next day you could give birth and all of a sudden you're now the role of the mother and just how ground shaking that is. So they're both these, these massive changes, but one feels quicker and support and less supported than the other. So I guess that's what I thought of when I really sat down and thought of matrescence. Hmm. I, I think that's really spot on. Um, the way I liken it, is the fact that we're not just talking about a change in one domain, right? Body or identity or profession or any of that. It's a biopsychosocial, political, spiritual, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, the upheaval um, that comes with the shift is happening on all of those levels simultaneously, or one can you know, just like the developmental lines of a child, you know, walking might come before talking, but all of those um, domains are coming into a new uh, access, a new center. And there is a liminal time, which means a between time, a betwixt and between time. Anthropology really knows that around rite of passages and why the culture is typically there to support that transitional period, because there's a time of in-between in which um, that all of those things have to molt. We have to have a perhaps a mourning process, a sense of loss from what was, and we also have to have a sense of um, both excitement and frustration and f- fear, perhaps, around what is yet to be. Uh, and that uh, place needs to be midwifed in a particular way psychologically until um, the the mother is starting to come into a knowing around those 
um, new forms that she is encountering. She's also probably going to come into some great surprises. Um, maybe somebody uh, never told her <laughs> about many surprises. Some of the experience. <laughs> many surprises. There is, in many ways, I think, a, a falling into the crack between the ideal and the real, the expected and the lived. And that is really such a tender time um, in which we we come to really come face to face with our expectations, whether that is about how we are going to cope with it as individuals or in terms of who the support network is that we thought would be there, including all sorts of um, responses from the community that uh, may be unfair um, or also wonderful in the same way that a teen has to um, really perhaps come through some great discomforts because also, boy, there's also bodily changes and um, all sorts of ways in which things can might feel out of control. So I think that metrescence like adolescence kind of holds the whole enchilada. And it does so in, I think, a very compassionate way. I say that because at times when we go into um, ways in which we split the narrative to either be all bad or all good, loving every minute of it or hating every minute of it, um, we can start to get very polarized even internally in our experiences when we don't have a working model or a framework that allows for the complexity, the both and, that they could be coexisting they can be coexisting in a warring manner, in an ambivalent manner, or they could be coexisting in a way in which it's more alchemical, it's starting to work itself out. Um, and, of course, it also is very necessary for, I think, the, the, the public beyond the clinical to understand the variability and diversity of experiences for each individual mother. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. We tend to kind of put it in. It's all great. It's all horrible. I think I read in one of your interviews, someone said motherhood is simultaneously the most profound and crippling experience and that they can be both at the same time instead of, Oh, it's, you know, there's a lot of, online stuff, blogs, just uh, kind of coming together and be like, this is horrible. And then there's the other side of how shiny and perfect it is. Um, so I'm glad that you're talking that they can be together, both the same things, profound and challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually what brings the depth and the stretch in the psychology of a mother. And where on the other side, we have um, a, an, an, a vision and a worldview that is much larger. It's an enlarged one because of this stretch. It really actually has the capacity to hold paradox and so, nuance. And one thing you said, I'd love for you to go a little deeper into this about the mourning of the past. So when someone does transition into this motherhood role, there is a letting go of what happened before. And I hear a lot of women talk about that in class. Sometimes they, they miss their old life or, or they feel like some part of them has died. I mean, I kind of joke and say like, oh, I, I miss, you know, sleeping. Um, so, cause it hasn't mm -hmm. happened nearly as much as before. Can you talk a little bit more about that letting go or that mourning or the acceptability or even how to process that? Well, it's very real. I think the first thing to do is to really um, validate it. 
and to um, understand that a big change is happening while simultaneously having to take care of a vulnerable other. So there isn't a lot of space sometimes to give self-care or compassion to this great um, loss that a person is undergoing. What I would first say is that it's normative. Uh, it's part of the process. And I so wish probably someone had said that to any mother um, going through that first and foremost. Um, you know, it's an ego hit as well. Uh, a lot is changing around one's own ways of being valued, perhaps, whether it's in the workplace or in the um, marital relationship, if there is one, or um, again, even just fitting into those genes again, because you're getting so many messages as when are you going to go back to work or back to, you know, you know, back to your, your old size when really what we're talking about is moving through and forward mm -hmm. and there's no going back. And I think when one sort of comes to that realization and for each mother, it's different when she comes to that realization that there's no going back, there is a true uh, mourning. And I think that what is helpful to know is that it is, again, normative to the process and that it's a developmental process, meaning it won't always feel like this. Uh, we're accommodating something new. All new experiences and transitions feel like this. And to actually ask perhaps a mother, when in her life has she experienced a transition before? You know, it might have been moving to a different country or um, changing jobs or um a loss of a, of a family member to, in a way, remind her that she can do change and that change is really a part of the life passage, but it can be made harder or easier around how she's resourced and what is also her own attitude around it. So I would say in terms of helping around this, it would be concrete and practical things to, to, in, to resource a mother. Um, we really are often left quite alone to do this, both in no one telling us how to do it or warning us that this is coming upon us because the stories aren't there and the intergenerational transmission of uh, the stories are not there. And then the actual hands-on support might not be there. We have families that are often far away or, um, you know, the nature of grandparenting has also shifted quite a bit where they're living longer and perhaps having their own lives and are not as invested in supporting the, the early transition of a new family. There are so many reasons and, and, and ways and affordability of family care. So we have to get quite practical with the mother and see where exactly she can get some support so that she can actually have a reflective space to do the psychological work of what and, and make meaning of what is happening to her. So what would you say would be some of those solid pieces she can have set up prior to the actual birth and that huge transition, you know, like the automatic, like now here is baby. <laughs> so mm -hmm. is it making sure she has you know, either a family or a postpartum doula, what, what are some of the things that she can help prepare for this or, or the whole family can help prepare? Cause it's not just the, the woman. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I used to kind of make recommendations that were more um, holistic around this. And then in every time I speak to a mother, I don't know if you have found this, but it's so peculiar to the particular mom, right? Um, Whether she's working um, full-time or part-time, whether her family is near or far and and everything like that. So the first thing I just want to say is that the diversity has been so um, real that it's been the, the the recommendation I always make is is to work at a at a real granular level with each mother and figure out within the day within the hour um, what and where she actually needs help because it might not be around let's say the cooking uh, or it might be around the sleeping or it might be but I would say almost what we call those vegetative things sleeping eating the basics that you even spoke to are really fundamental to the well-being of any human being and to ensure that there's a way that she can get some of those needs met and that she has to advocate for it, um, which is unfair because in some ways I think for a mother often there's this sort of like, can't they see I need help, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and it's very true. And I think it's also in a way that women, um, you know, take care of things for others. And when it's their time to be taken care of, it's extremely hard to voice that need because also it feels like it might be a a form of vulnerability, weakness, or failing on her part. Mm -hmm. So as someone once said, you get a hundred percent of what you don't ask for. So unfortunately there needs to be some kind of agency and self-advocacy in asking concretely to specific people. So it's not just saying help, you know, even when you're in a bad situation, you don't just say help, help. You say you call 911. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like really an important thing that she has to start to, and that can help be helped with by a coach. Um, I'm delighted that there are a lot of um, new roles like, you know, the perinatal doula, postpartum doula to come in and just help a mother while she's foggy. You know, this is very much. And that's different than a baby nurse. Let's just also say that mm-hmm. um, baby nurses, if people are listening, they're like, oh, but I'm hiring a baby nurse. Baby nurse tends to be really focused on the baby and not so much on the mom. Um, I had a postpartum doula for both of my kids. The first was a lifesaver. Um, and she really was about taking care of the mom and teaching her how to care for the baby because it's a huge responsibility. And all of a sudden you have this baby And everyone thinks that instinctually you're going to know what to do, but I found it overwhelming and I had worked with babies for almost 10 years at that point. So there is a difference. And if you can also speak to, you know, that, that idea that mom's handed this child and they should know what to do, that seems a little unfair. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, really good point, you know, um, in understanding now all of these different professionals and paraprofessionals that come into the maternal care space and what each of them are um, trained to do and what they can help you with. And so, you know, being educated and being a good consumer, you know, now that it might not be a hundred percent reliance on family and extended family, this might be something that you can uh, avail yourself of. And, um, and to that point, the idea of maternal instinct um, or the instinctual knowledge around raising a child, I think, needs to be truly disrupted. And I try to do that in my own class. Um, and I know you asked about that class, and I'll weave it in here and there. <laughs> but it, one of the most difficult 
modules that I teach is on maternal instinct because in a way I'm really uh, shaking up these notions of instinct. And looking at readings cross-culturally and across time of whether or not that might be true from animal models to, um, you know, the way, let's say in a certain part of the century in France, you know, children were given to wet nurses and what, and how that changed the relationship of the mother to the child. In short, I've personally concluded that it is very much a learned experience as much as anything else. And we don't have to make it black and white. And that the idea of competence and mastery comes with time. It comes with um, perhaps maybe you grew up around kids and modeling, you know, seeing others model how to how to take care of them. Um, perhaps it is about um, you know reading uh, books. You know, it may come from all many manners of things leading up to the actual child. But then you get your own particular child. And each child is different. And, you know, your first child is one experience. And then having a second child with the other child is also a different experience. And so there's, you know, just exponential, constant, ever-flowing learning that is happening in which trial and error is probably the basis of the best education a mother will have. And it's there where she, I think, would do very well to have this um, other mother figure, this allo mother figure, whether it is, you know, the doula or the grandmother or the best friend or the partner, to be able to hold the mother in a way to say, it's okay, we'll try again. This is working or this is not working. How else can we do this better? And to really soften the self-criticism and perfection that can sometimes fall into this space. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think there's a lot of pressure to get it right. And I'm speaking from experience as a mother of relatively young children, as well as, you know, being in the community of young, of a lot of young children and not so that mom puts on pressure. I've got to do it right. Then there's like society and then maybe family and not a lot of space of forgiveness of like, okay, that clearly didn't work. That technique didn't work. That idea didn't work. Let's try something else. So I think we need to also be a little softer with ourselves as well as the expectations of society around us um, about how we're doing. Because, you know, we've all been in the restaurant and I've been that parent with this where the kid's having a freak out and I get embarrassed. I'm like, oh my God, you know, mm. child's freaking out. And then there's glares and just a little bit more forgiving. Like we're all trying our best. And I don't think that's out there. What are thoughts? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's why um, when we take it out of this idea of instinct and into learning, you know, forgiveness and compassion has to come with that. Would we by would we tell a toddler, you know, they're just not getting, you know, their uh, I don't know, they're eating uh, fork to mouth. You you're know, not right. Yet three, you're not doing Latin better. Get <laughs> you're your you're Latin up there. <laughs> it's really just quite the rub and really unfair. Um, And I think it's, again, because there's just been so many misrepresentations and and lack of education assumption um, about what the maternal, the developmental experience is. It's not in some ways our fault for the public. It's, it's, it's lacking in our scholarship and in our science. I mean, mothers form the cornerstone of so many psychological theories and yet 
they rarely are um, subjects of interest in their own right. Uh, so we're just starting to really um, illuminate this this landscape and to see what it is that's going on. So directly, yes, we have to bring a lot of softness and forgiveness. And also, I think, return the mother to her own knowing. I think it's been pitched out, um, you know, to feeling like one is being watched all the time or that there are rights and wrongs. And it's so refreshing, actually, to read anthropological literature because you see parents are doing it differently all over the world in all different ways. And it's so specific to a particular culture or a particular family that the idea that there's one unitary model of how to do anything is just really laughable. So when you can just have a mother get very present, whether you want to call that mindfulness, whatever you want to call that, but just get present and check in and see, is the, is the kid okay? You know, let's give an example of, you know, just worrying about um, a feeding experience, you know, or a sleeping experience is, is the kid doing okay? All right. You know, fine. Did we survive this uh, day or this hour? Okay. So that, that's what I mean by the attitude kind of bringing, um, getting into that perfectionism, um, and that need to do something right and get into a little bit more of a flexible position. I want to talk a little bit, gosh, everything you say sparks different ideas. So I'm going to try to hone my ideas. <laughs> so when you said perfectionism, I feel like I see this often that, and this could be identity, struggle for identity, especially if maybe someone had the identity in a job and kind of a powerful job or not even a powerful, just any identity. And then all of a sudden now they're just mom. I feel like I see a shift of putting perfectionism on the child, maybe as a reflection of themselves. Um, you know, I kind of grew up with my mom putting a lot of pressure on me to be her ideals. Do you see, do you think that's a lack of identity or just... I don't know. What do you, where do you think that comes from? Hmm. Thank you. That's a really um, good question. And one that um, I've heard, you know, come before it's a phenomena, right. That we might observe. So um, if you'll allow me um, a kind of larger theory that I think might yeah. hold this. Okay. I think what happens is the thing that is most obvious is the devaluation of the maternal role in general, right? So that um, we might be seen within the larger culture as more powerful the more we perform in outside, in areas outside of the home, in the public sector. Uh, the private sector used to be the only place that women could be. And remember, it's fairly recently in our history that that has changed. And mostly uh, around the world, that hasn't changed. So when I think in terms of the history of women's consciousness and the women's movement moving into the public sector and getting um, power, when the return when that is taken away or the return back into the home life, something happens, and it happens differently for everybody. But my larger theory around this is, fo- is as follows: we we live in a culture, a larger culture that awards you know some basic things like. Um, competition over collaboration, right? Individualism over collectivism, all of those kinds of um, this versus that. And one of the things that raising a child does, fortunately or unfortunately, or facing one's mortality, 
whether you do it through a diagnosis or you do it through bringing in a child, is that you start to actually be asked different things. A child is asking you to be more uh, relational. A child is asking you to be more present. A child is asking you to uh, be more tender than aggressive, even though being aggressive might work in other domains, et cetera, et cetera. And I believe what is being asked of in the maternal world or in the parental world, I think this really is quite relevant to whether you're raising vulnerable children or a pet or, you know, aging parents, is teaching a whole set of ways of being that are essentially the opposite or orthogonal to the larger culture. And I think this is where I'm seeing a lot of midlife crisis in mothers. They're really being, and with it also creativity, like the the mompreneurship, you know, Mm -hmm. the way in which there is this crisis where a woman might have found her power in a set of conditions and values in the public sector that rewarded her for it. And then the family and family life starts to ask for another set of responses and actually a different metric of what success is. And then they start to coexist and that can create some real um, challenges and frankly suffering. When I talk to parents who are trying to rework this whole Uh, matrescence experience and their professional identity and all of that, it seems as if they're being split apart. And what I've found is that they might make some kind of, you know, distortions where they might bring some of the values from the outside into the home, or they try to bring some of the values from inside of the home into the public sector for more or less success. But then something eventually happens and it works itself out where they either come to some kind of compromise or they reinvent something. You know, I I find a lot of mothers are coming into creating new businesses and just getting out of former identifications of what success uh, is or Mm -hmm. are, um, but that it is not done without some difficulty. I don't know if that answered your question. Mm -hmm. No, that was interesting. Yeah, that sparked even more. I was actually taking notes on some of this. Mm. So what do you think some of the biggest challenges or struggles you're seeing as someone transitions into motherhood? You know, I'm seeing this almost like a midlife crisis in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, It is especially for, let's say, if we talk about mothers here um, in the area, right? We're in New York, you know, we're in an urban environment. Um, I think that they have taken the time to develop themselves, their identities, their professional life. They may have also been part of the delayed entry into motherhood, meaning there's a rise in age, right? Mm -hmm. They're not doing it uh, in their emerging adult years. They're doing it probably in the late 20s to mid 30s and even into their 40s. And with that, um, the again, the tasks of motherhood and what is being asked of them, both to let go 
and to begin to adopt, I think is starting to have them question a whole lot uh, from their value in their marriages and in their work or in their families or within you know, the larger society. Um, and I think they're starting to suffer and really it doesn't look like for them, like getting like a new cherry red sports car, like we've seen in male, male models. Um, (laughs) we see this kind of reckoning again, I call it where their ego is taking a real hit. Um, they're doing so in largely unsupported contexts without any working models. So it would be like running a marathon without anybody telling you what are the milestones and when's the beginning and the end and starting to, um, show that it's not working very well. And what the challenges I'm seeing there is them kind of coming into a new source of power for themselves and the ability to reorganize the whole structure from their families and their professional lives. A lot of the private practice that I do is really about that. It's not really just about the baby. And it's really not just about them. It's about, sorry to use that word again, the whole enchilada. (laughs) And really realizing that there might have to be a whole new order of things. And that feels extraordinarily threatening. It's threatening not only for the individual mother, but also for her family and perhaps even for the extended network around her because everything has to change, not just the expectations of her. And that is the place where I actually get very excited about because I think there's a lot of phenomenal potential for reinvention and um, reinvention, invention, um, entrepreneurship, a whole new way of doing things. And I think that the larger social order needs to be refreshed. I think actually our mothers are social agents of change, but they're not really realizing that their individual story can embody that whole thing. Yeah, I hear that. And I see that. And I feel that kind of in that I was a little bit of on the late side having kids, but I see that there's this I talked about another guest like this, kind of like this muddiness of like, we're reinventing what motherhood is looking like. But I feel like every generation kind of does that too. Like I look back to my mom and then her mom and you know, things just seem a little messy as they try to reemerge. I also want to shift a little bit to kind of the focus and support of the mom. I've talked about this a little bit, but when you look at pregnancy, you know, especially the last month to six weeks, focus is so on the mother. She's seeing her care provider basically every week. And then all of a sudden she births and she doesn't see her care provider, but up to six weeks. And now it's also gone from caring for mother to caring for babies that now is now the focus for the most part. How do you think that impacts the new mother and what can we do about that? Well, isn't that just bananas? First of all, right? <laughs> it is. It's I totally mean, like, insane. can we just call it out? That's just such such bananas. And I can't say that actually, even the kind of care that she received up until having the baby, unless she really did have a more women centered care, um, was very, uh, you know, concerned with 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 her. Yeah. So you know, it's bananas that has to change, plain and simply, and it's all a way in which 
it may not be explicit, but it's implicit in communicating to the mother that she's not of interest. Um, and, and that just really needs to change. And I talk about that in class all the time. She goes from the OBGYN to the hands of, you know, the pediatrician, the, the baby gets, I think, a visit within the first, you know, few days. Um, and you know, she's left for six weeks and it's really just to check, um, you know, kind of vital signs, you know, bleeding and, you know, um, just how she's in a sense, physiologically, you know, recovering from the experience. And that's bananas for a number of reasons too. Um, the model that I like to work in around what birth is like, what is birth? Is birth traumatic? Is birth ecstatic? Is it orgasmic? I mean, we have so many different, um, you know, books and, and media around this, you know, which is it? I like to say it's dramatic. It's dramatic Mm -hmm. and it can go in any number of ways. It can zig and it can zag depending on the person and their circumstances and, you know, all of these good things. We can go go into our birth experience with, you know, you know, hope and, and preparation and good expectations and good care. And it could go this way or that way. Um, so the variability again, diversity of experience. And that comes actually from the literature also of George Bonanno, who looks at potentially traumatic events, you know, that it's also, you know, the person, you know, we can see people who go through the two, two people go through the same traumatic event and come out on the other side, uh, very differently, um, depending. So, because we also have our own resilience and self-writing qualities. So that's all to say that a woman who goes through the birthing, uh, passage, is going to encounter a very dramatic experience that will imprint her in very fundamental ways and that will either remind her about the ways that she succeeded or failed in the past around her her dramatic experiences or will encounter things that are so entirely new that they may either, um, you know, boost her confidence or, um, in a sense, take it out from under her. And she has a lot, a lot, to reflect on and look at and even just speak and narrate. And the fact that uh, so few times we ask even afterwards to a mother, how did the birth go for you is what I think we don't even need, you know, professionals to do this. I think we just need friends to do this and find safe spaces for her not to share necessarily like the horror stories, you know, before a lot of times what we do is we scare each other before the birthing experience, or we say it's going to be all okay. I think it's just let her have her experience and then let's see what she made of it. Because for the most part, we don't have mental health professionals, um, midwifing the experience of birth and we need it because there's a, there's a psychology, there's a human being who is having an experience And in many ways, at times, watching something happening to them or struggling to find a way to participate in it, the way that will uh, feel empowering. And on the other side, we have a new mother being formed. And in other cultures, whether they call it the fourth trimester or doing the month or whatever, you know, usually they bind the mother with some kind of physiological things, eat this way, rest this way, all of that. But I think what is most beautiful is, um, I forget what tradition is, they used to put the mother near the fire, uh, I think probably to warm her body, but, but also so that she would bake, 
because she's like clay that needs to be in the kiln to finally, in a way, become. And that is that process that um, is literally lacking. It's absent in most contemporary, um, you know, world and life that we live in, you know, currently here in New York. And it's, um, it's a real problem. Nor is the solution, by the way, in idealizing um, cultural practices, because I've had my fair share of women who've, you know, done their particular culture's uh, prescriptions and been just as miserable, because in a way they are equally um, not helpful because they're rigid, right? Because you're being told what to do Mm -hmm. during that time, but you're not getting to sort of just ask uh, what to do. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I think the heating, if I'm correct, I know that a lot of Eastern philosophies talk about heating the mother's body after, I think several cultures actually do that. Um, I'm pretty sure in Japan, they talk about that as well. And I think Mexico, so I could be wrong, but that is a big component postpartum for many cultures, but you have talked a lot about, you know, referred to other cultures, which I'm always very interested in. Of course, we don't want to idealize, but like, oh, if we were in in France, we'd have X, Y, and Z, but are there certain traits that you have seen that have really been supportive, um, that maybe we can start to adopt here? Hmm. Hmm. Well, first of all, creating uh, uh, just a space and a name, like the fourth trimester or doing the month, you know, just in terms of like, um, ritual process, simply knowing and consecrating a specific time that is really important. And we know that those are the same times where there might be something like baby blues occurring, that they are sensitive and critical windows. I think that's incredibly important. We are not somehow, um, because we are now in modern times, we cannot simply do away with what humanity has understood. Uh, so if you want to take it and call it an ancient technology or whatever you want to do, we know that it takes time for, like I said, symbolically, the mother to sort of come into, to bake, you know, to come psychologically, because I'm always looking at the psychological piece. And we know that she must not be isolated. And we know that she must not be smothered. Mm -hmm. so it's about having that mother say I literally have to say like just like you would for the birthing room who would you actually really want to be there Mm -hmm. right it might not actually be the people that you think uh so surround yourself with the people during that month that can support you um the sleep is absolutely critical and therefore you need to find a way that you can um feed your child um, in a way that can also allow you to rest, um, whatever that means. So meaning, you know, that there could be others around and those who can feed you or that you could feed your family. I always found the stocked refrigerator to be one of the kindest things in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, basic, uh, things, people coming in and just doing the dishes or the laundry, I think is incredibly important. Um, I think also a space where a woman can actually probably be, frankly, semi-nude. <laughs> yeah. No, there's such truth in that. I mean, having had two kids and having been a doula, 
and going to postpartum <laughs> visits, I can't tell you how many breasts are just hanging out. And you got to be okay with it. Like you got to be okay with it <laughs> because and that's you know, what's happening. <laughs> that's right. And whatever was it, Chrissy Teigen or whatever that was talking about, or you know the uh, who's my favorite comedian now who talks about the. Um, the pair, you know, the mesh underwear. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, I saw uh, that. I saw that special. Um, oh, shoot. I forgot her name. I see her. Uh, Ali Wong. Uh, uh, Ali Wong. Yeah. yeah. Ali Wong, right? <laughs> you know, being in the mesh underwear. I think, you know, the mesh underwear and a robe is about all you can handle. Yeah. And that's great, you know, and that's all you should do. In fact, frankly, it's very freeing, you know. Um, I had uh, a wonderful friend who actually drew herself a cartoon of herself as, uh, you know, just like with a cape, all she was wearing was a cape and that mesh underwear, um, <laughs> you know, as sort of a superhero, you know, so sort of thinking about, um, you know, permission for spaces to really just let it all hang out and let things, let things go. The things that you can't get to. And I think that's part of the other- perfectionism too. Like mm-hmm. our, our need is like, oh, it has to be all perfect. Like it's messy that, you know, motherhood in general is messy, but that those first, you know, that fourth trimester, first 12 weeks, whatever you want to call it, it is such a learning curve, especially if you're trying to breastfeed I and mean, talk about mm-hmm. boobs hanging out everywhere and pillows and props. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. just, and again, the kind of embracing the mess, I guess. That's right. And um, in fact, you know, one thing we haven't talked about around breastfeeding is I have also found that that is the other thing that people say they never, you know, no one ever told me. Um, you know, there are, there are again, stories that range from, you know, the breastfeeding uh, fairy tale all the way to, you know, difficulties and challenges uh, on the way out of even uh, finally making that choice. So it's, it's, a, it's a real ripe time and a lot of difficulty can be around there. So, oh boy, and talk about mastery and learning. That is not, uh, I have never seen a a mother just instinctually be able to understand how to do that, uh, immediately or well, there are hands that are needed and ways to do that. So that's a whole other podcast, but that's (laughs) a whole other podcast in and of itself. So again, so that time just really needs to have a lot of permission. And then that means also work. You know, I've seen another thing that I've really not enjoyed. Um, and we need more advocacy around protecting and consecrating that space is work leaking in, into the, the postpartum time. Now it's funny because that could be a blessing and a curse actually. Um, in some ways women can start to feel so isolated during their time that they feel good being able to connect and do something, um, whether that's, whether they're doing social media or they're doing, you know, some kind of, you know, writing emails or, um, doing all sorts of things. So it's, it's sort of funny how technology has both in a way penetrated that space in a problematic way, right. You know, disconnecting and needing to just be in that bubble for a little way, but also has, um, irrigated it by allowing for, you know, communication to happen. So, um, yeah. And then I would say the new mother's groups, um, again, it's not everybody's bag, you know, and I know it could feel sometimes, uh, for many women also talk about feeling like they're going back to high school or college and meeting new people and having to make friends and new mom friends. And they have to think about it like a rite of passage. It's yet another opportunity, a window that's opening for new people to come into your life. And it might feel uncomfortable at first, uh, or you might be super social and that's exactly your medicine, but it really is this opportunity, you know, by the time you become a parent, many of your social groups have already formed 
And if you've moved and just having a baby, which often is the case, buses comes in threes, you know, you lose a parent, you, uh, you know, change jobs, you move and you have a baby. These things happen all at once. Getting a new support network um, or new friends, even if it's just one, you know, one person who has a child around the same age that you can trade secrets with and, and tips is really important. Well, that's what makes me think when you mentioned the new friends and the new mom groups, the compared to adolescents, it is, it has kind of that uncomfortableness of making new friends and needing new friends because some of your older friends may not be exactly where you are. And sometimes you just need to be with someone and be like, you know, my child's regressing in the sleep. What about your child? And just to have someone on the same page. Cause sometimes parents or friends don't remember exactly how it was. So it does kind of have that awkwardness of trying to meet new friends that adolescents can have too. Yeah. And if I may say a word about that just quickly, sure. you know, what happens with friendships, boy, do they undergo a seismic shift as well. You know, those who didn't have um, children, or let me start again, if you're coming into the parental space before your other friends have, or perhaps they're opting out, um, or perhaps they're even in their own fertility journeys, you know, these things can start to shift the very nature of friendships, um, where perhaps they were going out in certain ways and you can't anymore. So you, in a way, talk about loss, you lose relationships. Mm -hmm. You also start to gain other ones that you might have been surprised by that were already uh, in, in your network. And then there's also the new. And that whole process of sort of finding, you know, will they like me? Do I like them? Do we like the same things? Are we on the same boat, you know, like with dating. our parenting style? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we Absolutely. moved to a new town two years ago. And as we're still making new friends, it feels like dating. Like, how did that family play date go? Should we call them? Do we want them to come over? Like, it's it's like family dating. It's very strange. That's right. And you can feel very strange when you don't get called back or, you know, you, you feel like you did a faux pas or you have to find now. It's not only a friend for you. It's a friend for your children or a friend for your partner or there's so many different conditions that have to come together in a new way. And we don't talk enough about how difficult that is because many of us might have felt like we were done with that. You know, we've really come into our, you know, networks and, and or settled. And like I said, the uprooting of motherhood around, you know, the, the internal intrapsychic stuff is actually a parallel process to the very often uprooting that's happening actually in where they live and their relationships. Because like I said, a lot of moving, most people in their first, um, you know, when they first have a child, they might even outgrow the space that they can afford. So they might have to move um, simply to accommodate another child. And with that, you know, so many changes too. Oh my gosh. So I think we have discussed that motherhood is all about change. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically it is adolescence, motherhood. You think you're done with adolescence and massive change until you have a child. So as we start to wrap things up, is there anything we didn't touch upon that you want to throw in? Well, I'll just play off of what you just said. For me in my field, I found it really interesting that we saw a lot of um, information around change and human development change around like the early childhood years and then adolescence. And then there was silence. 
until we moved maybe into the more golden years of moving into uh, the geriatric years. So I think that matrescence really does bring the magic back into adult development. It speaks to the fact that we are always changing, um, that we are growing, evolving, expanding, enlarging, and challenging who we think we are and how we are seen by the world. And so this is actually, for me, a very positive um, moment for us to see this as a way to grow, even though we're adults. So that's how I'll end it. Oh, that's wonderful. So as if people are listening, they're kind of sparked their interest. Where can people find out a little bit more about some of the work you've done? Um, great. So where you can find I suppose the portfolio of my um, theory and thinking and my private practice, it's at um, matrescence.com. So it'll force you to learn that word. (laughs) I'll make sure it's on our show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. And my private practice is a procreative consulting where I work with mothers, um, well, actually to be mothers. So if, when, and how you would like to enter this uh, new adventure and then during and through the adventure, you may uh, find yourself wondering about all of these new changes and how to accommodate them. That's a possibility. But if you're really a professional who also wants to, um, perhaps you're not a mental health professional, perhaps you are a mother, maternal care worker, we have a lot of wonderful courses here at Teachers College Columbia University. I teach the course on matrescence. We have perinatal mental health, and of course, we have this wonderful certificate program on reproductive and maternal well-being. So thank you. Oh, that's amazing. Well, thank you so much for spending an hour with me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much as well for the invitation. It's been quite the honor. Oh, wonderful. Well, have a wonderful afternoon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.